Welcome, everyone, to the second episode of The Blacklist, where I discuss the people that Hollywood history forgot, the black people. I'm Mariah, your host, and while preparing this episode and this first season, I realized that there was a common theme in all the stories that I wanted to tell this time around. They're all women. So this season, I'm going to tell you six stories of powerful black women in classic Hollywood. So how does one woman work her way from living on a former plantation to becoming one of the first black movie stars in existence to being signed to the biggest star-making Hollywood movie studio only to not get the star treatment and going on to star in one of the biggest and first political films addressing racism against African-Americans and pave the way for stars ranging from Dorothy Dandridge to Halle Berry and beyond, only to fade into obscurity for decades. Well, I'll tell you, this week's story is that of the Queen of the Night, the Black Greta Garbo, Nina Mae McKinney. Nina Mae McKinney was born Nanny Mame McKinney, the only child to parents Hal N. McKinney and Nanny Crawford, who often went by Georgia. Nanny Mame was born June 12, 1913, in Lancaster, South Carolina. Though her parents moved to New York City during the Great Migration of African Americans from the South to the North during the early years of the 20th century, Nanny Mame was raised by her great aunt, Carrie Sanders, on Colonel Leroy Sanders' estate, where her family lived for many generations. Even at an early age, as young as six or seven, Nanny Mame was a star. She always had a natural flair for performance. She'd run errands for her aunt in town and perform stunts on her bike for small amounts of money. She loved the spotlight, and if you'd ever seen photos of her, you'd understand. She was an insanely beautiful woman. She'd stand out in any crowd, in any chorus, in any performance. Now, maybe it was a case of timing and luck that at the exact same time, Nanny Mame is developing this passion that around the country, black independent artists and filmmakers are making waves that she surely would have been exposed to because the South was home to several black-owned production companies and theaters. Or maybe it was just always in her. Because watching her films, you get the sense that nothing is unintentional, but she also does it with such ease that it seems effortless. Maybe it was a combination of both, but she certainly worked hard enough because while attending the Lancaster Training School, she performed in school plays where she would often memorize all of her classmates' lines in addition to her own. She taught herself to sing and dance until the sixth grade when she was 12 or 13 years old and her parents sent for her. And Nanny Mame left her small-town life for much bigger stages in New York City. And New York City did not disappoint young Nanny Mame. She attended public school in 126th Street, and her passion for performance strengthened as she was exposed to the city's vibrant theater, film, vaudeville, and cabaret scenes. It was overwhelming, as it would be for any teenager. But she took full advantage of the opportunities around her, often performing at cabarets or in reviews, until she, at the age of 15, left school to pursue an acting career full-time. And Nanny Mame thought that this new commitment to her craft warranted a new name. And so Nanny Mame McKinney became Nina Mae McKinney. 
The newly minted Nina Mae McKinney got her first sort of big break on Broadway when she performed in the chorus of Blackbirds of 1928, a hit Broadway musical starring Bill Bojangles Robinson and Adelaide Hall, two of the biggest black entertainers of the 20th century. The musical was extremely successful and went on to be one of the longest running musicals of its kind, but it would be career launching for Nina May. King Vidor, the famous silent film era director, spotted Nina May in the chorus and cast her in his 1929 musical film, Hallelujah which was billed as a story of murder and redemption in the Deep South. He said of Nina May, Nina May was third from the right in the chorus. She was beautiful and talented and glowing with personality. And so a star was born. Hallelujah was a film King Vidor wanted to make for a long time. And though he had trouble convincing the studio, it did not disappoint. It was also the first sound film King Vidor ever made. 1929 was a peculiar time in Hollywood history. The industry was transitioning from silent films to sound, and though some studios were resisting, thinking it would be a phase that died out eventually, which is what they would later say about television, they eventually got on board. But with the technology being so new and this class of actors, whose stars were now fading, now being forced to rely on more than their good looks and physical comedy, and being forced to actually speak lines... It was a rough time period, especially given that some of the biggest names in Hollywood were foreign, with the thickest accents imaginable, like the actual Greta Garbo, who hailed from Sweden. And MGM, the studio that produced Hallelujah, was the last of the Hollywood studios to transition to sound. But this newness that was sound opened up a whole new world for African-American filmmakers to finally tell their stories and change the narratives surrounding Black Americans as mammies, Uncle Toms, to people with death. It was a chance for them to get political and to demand justice in their art. This movement is something I hope to delve into later, but as it relates to Hallelujah, King Vidor had long wanted to make this film. But MGM's image was wholesome and family-oriented, and the kind of racial politics and conversations that the premise of this film like this would start were not in line with their core values at all. He was turned down by the studio for years, until the sound revolution came, and he said, If stage plays with all Negro casts and stories like those by activists Roy Cohen and others could have such great success, why shouldn't the screen make a successful Negro play? Citing the success of musicals like Blackbirds of 1928, because once Hollywood figured out that there was an audience for race films, they decided it might be better to use actual Black actors rather than white actors in blackface, though they would continue to do so for many decades to come. The idea of an all-Black cast singing Negro spirituals excited him, he grew up in Galveston, Texas, and cited the interactions that he saw between African Americans as inspiration. He said of this, I used to watch the Negroes in the South, which was my home. I studied their music, and I used to wonder at the pent-up romance in them. This pent-up romance that he was witness to was no doubt caused by the threat that came from Black Southerners being watched by white people whose mere presence has posed a threat to our safety and comforts since we were forced onto this land. But a privileged young white boy in early 20th century wouldn't understand that. Nonetheless, he isn't wrong about the lack 
of expression of Black love in film. Though I don't think Hallelujah accomplished that in the way he pitched it. But pitch it, he did. And the boss of the MGM studio at the time, Nick Skank, said, Well, if you think like that, I'll let you make a picture about whores. And Hallelujah was born. Hallelujah opens with a bunch of black people in a field picking cotton, singing Negro spirituals about picking cotton. It's full of talented actors playing a destitute situation that they seem to be in. It's our classic post-Civil War reconstructed period of African-Americans sharecropping and being as happy as one could be in a situation in which they work for themselves, picking cotton to sell to white folks in hopes of getting a price good enough to live off of. They sing songs of hope and have blind faith in religion, even as some of them continue to live in houses we can only assume they occupied while they were someone else's property. It was for this very reason that Paul Robeson turned down the role of Zeke, and according to historian Scott Eyman, he loathed the film. It doesn't stray from the sort of coon caricatures of Mammy and Pappy and huge, illiterate families that can only do backbreaking labor and sing songs of faith in happier days, while talking about the cornbread and chitlins they're going to eat, or even in the case of Nina May's first appearance on screen as Chick, where she is surrounded by men scantily dressed and dancing the Sweeney Shuffle, a dance popularized by McKinney. In fact, this character started a long history of Black women being portrayed as gold diggers, scammers, and was one of the earliest instances of a Black whore on screen. Nonetheless, here's a bit of the song sang by Nina May with lyrics by Irvin Berlin. So it isn't the most progressive movie, but there are elements of it that are revolutionary in my humble opinion. But first, let me explain the plot without giving away any spoilers, because you should definitely watch this film. Hallelujah follows Zeke, the eldest child of two people only referred to as Mammy and Pappy. His family picks cotton for the season and sends Zeke off to sell it, and Zeke loses all of his family's money to Hotshot, a local crook, after being tantalized and seduced by Hotshot's girlfriend, Chick, who, as I explained earlier, was played by Nina Mae McKinney. Tragedy strikes. A different tragedy than losing all of his family's money. And Zeke becomes a preacher. When he returns to his home, he is welcomed with open and warm arms, except by Hotshot and Chick who heckle him to no end until they feel the spirit inside of them and Chick almost gets baptized by Brother Ezekiel, as he is now called, who can't control his animal instincts. So to cope with the devil inside of him, he gets engaged to Missy Rose, a young maiden who lives with his family. But he discovers that Chick is still interested in him and he marries her instead abandoning his ministry, only to discover that Chick is still seeing her old flame hotshot. Zeke tries to stop the affair when Chick decides to run away with hotshot, and spoiler alert, Zeke kills hotshot in a fight. The film ends with Zeke returning home to his family after he's released from prison with a look of contentment on his face. He's finally found the peace he searched for the entire movie. Here's a bit of Zeke singing about his return home. Oh, in 
Despite the stereotypes, this film was groundbreaking. The feminism of Chick's character, who used men who would have used her if they could, to survive and never felt sorry about using her sexuality to her advantage because she was, in her words, never sure about what she wanted. Not to mention the electricity of her character on screen. Even when she isn't the focus, there's such a magnetic energy that flows from her to you. She is fun and revels in her character in the environment. And oh, God, that laugh. Iconic. The way she owns her sexuality and female prowess is amazing to watch. And speaking of sexuality, this is one of the first movies that shows African-Americans being sensual, nuanced beings capable of redemption, as well as crime and folly and all of the things that the white audiences expected from a black film. The assistant director, Harold Garrison, recruited 340 black actors from the Los Angeles area to be extras in the film, and they did not disappoint. They never disappointed. The studios never felt like there was an audience for race films or the talent to portray it. But whenever black actors were given the chance, they showed that they could hold their own and then some. For example, the spunk funeral scene, spoiler alert, uh, there is such an overwhelming sense of love and community and a magnetic energy flowing through all the actors as if they were feeling the same pain. It's a cathartic experience. In the baptism scene, all these beautiful black people standing in front of this huge river, singing songs, praising those brave enough to join God. It's so fucking black. I really don't know how to explain it any other way. It's so grand, so extra, so fucking beautiful. And there's not one fucking white person in this entire 100 minute long film. This film was iconic. But the venture was so risky that MGM forced King Vidor to invest his own salary in the film so that they wouldn't lose terribly from this film, which they wrote off as yet another race picture. But it was a hit in every sense of the word. Many people say that the film's success primarily came from MGM's gall to even produce such a film. But it was the top moneymaker of 1929. The New York Times said... Hallelujah, with its clever Negro cast, is one of the few talking pictures that is really separate and distinct form of entertainment from a stage play. A photo play article came out a few months ahead of the film's August release, featuring the not yet 18-year-old Nina May wearing a tulle tutu and ballerina slippers, giving us a full view of her very long legs. It was titled, A Jungle Lorelei. And that's really as good as it gets. <laughs> the article says things like, Nina May longs for dresses like Gloria Swanson. And to quote Nina May, diamonds dribbling all over my physique. The article is so laughably offensive. Listen to the first line. She rolled them eyes and she rolled them hips. Mm-hmm, girl, shake that thing. It goes on to say things like, she may be black, but she's got a blonde soul. And Nina May isn't black. She's coppery with a crimson pagan mouth, which she paints like a Christian. Even through all of the very blatant racism in this article, Nina May seems thrilled. She says things like, I just love write-ups. And taking the writer, Herbert Howe, 
to a nightclub to dance or to watch her dance and saying things like, you got to show your sex attraction and that she was going to take Paris by storm like Josephine Baker. It also revealed that Step and Fetch It, one of the first black movie stars and a man dubbed the laziest man in America, was at a table near the pair in this nightclub and had proposed to Nina Mae previously, which she turned down because I quote, when I marry, it's not going to be for money. And the fact that he already had a wife and she had no intention of being one of those girls who was a kept woman. She wanted to see the world and work and live the high life that she never got to live as a child. She had the passion and the charisma. And according to Irvin Thalberg, a very important player in Hollywood, She's, quote, the greatest acting discovery of the age. Offensive as it may have been, it did wonders for Nina May's career. And she soon found herself signed to a five-year contract with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, which always boasted to have more stars than there are in heaven. Let me say this as plainly as I can. This was a big deal. This was bigger than a big deal. This was the biggest deal. This was fucking huge. This was unheard of. A black actress being signed to arguably the biggest Hollywood studio of them all. Everyone wanted to be on the MGM lot. Many white actors still couldn't become MGM contract players and Nina May became the first black actress to sign a contract to a major studio which stipulated that she was to play distinguished roles. After all, Irvin Thalberg, employed by MGM, said she had the skills, and then some. I should stop here for a moment uh, to explain the studio system a bit for those of you unfamiliar with the ways of classic Hollywood. During this golden age of Hollywood, there were eight-ish major Hollywood movie studios that essentially controlled the production and release of most of the movies that were distributed in the era. Of those eight, there were the big five that was Warner Brothers, 20th Century Fox, Paramount, RKO, and of course, MGM. The other three were Universal, Columbia, and United Artists. These studios would sign actors, actresses, writers, producers, directors, etc. to their studio to create movies for them, and the stars would get publicity through photo shoots, magazine interviews, and scandal protection because movie stars don't always know how to behave, and a salary. And MGM was known for its star-making machine. They'd take ordinary or lowly actors like Frederick Austerlitz and Francis Ethel Gum and turn them into Fred Astaire, Judy Garland, Shirley Temple, Elizabeth Taylor. The studios made stars. And MGM was king of kings when it came to star-making. So Nina Mae McKinney being signed to a five-year contract with MGM was exciting to say the least. She was thrilled about being the first, about the kind of life this would create for her. But MGM didn't know what to do with her. They didn't have roles for her, or at least not like she wanted. Most of her scenes ended up on the cutting room floor. She had some minor successes at MGM, playing herself in a short called Manhattan Serenade, a film that was lost until about three years ago and can now be seen uh, at MoMA in New York City. And her next major film following Hallelujah, Safe in Hell, in which she and Noble Johnson spoke standard American English, even though their lines had been written in a Negro dialect, much to the chagrin of the studio, 
they were among the most memorable performances of this otherwise lackluster thriller. There was some controversy surrounding newspapers calling Nina Mae McKinney the It Girl, which is a title that had always been associated with actress Clara Bow, and reports say that Miss Bow was none too happy about it. But Nina Mae was sick of the comparisons of black actresses to white ones. She was sick of always being measured against and passed over for white women. There are even reports that MGM dubbed Nina's voice over the songs of Jean Harlow, a blonde actress. So she thought that signing this contract would catapult her into stardom, and it didn't. But now she had all this excitement and energy and needed to perform. So she took the route that many black actors in the golden age did when they were fed up with the lack of opportunities in Hollywood. She went to Europe, and a star was born. Again, she said of her time in Europe, The Negro artists went to Europe because we were recognized and given a chance. In Europe, they had your name up in lights. People in the United States would not give us that chance. She found great success in Europe, performing in Athens, Greece, and Budapest, Hungary, where they called her the Black Garbo. And in Paris, she performed as a cabaret singer in popular restaurants around town. And she performed in a show called Chocolate and Cream at the Leicester Square Theater in London, which is where she shot her first film in two years, The Kentucky Minstrels. And it was the first African-American actress to be featured in a British film. This began an era of first for Nina Mae McKinney as she thrived in Europe. She was billed queen of the night. She continued to perform in Paris, London, Dublin, Greece, and all over Europe. She was the first black person, period, to appear on British television in 1935 on BBC's The Voice of Britain, and again in 1937 on BBC's television demonstration film. She performed for King George V in the Royal Command performance. When speaking of her work at such a respected level in Europe and the pressure that came with it, she said, stage work is more than a notion. I was a little nervous when I made my first bow in this country in a new environment. I was even more nervous than I usually am, but anywhere I play, I find myself nervous until I get used to the stage. The kinds of opportunities and happiness and glamour that was afforded to her in Europe was worlds beyond what Hollywood would ever offer her. But... She did return to New York in 1935 to perform in a review at the New York's famed Cotton Club where she sang dramatic songs. Because in 1935, she was no longer interested in being a sex pot or, as a newspaper article put it, a hellcat. She was trying to distance herself from chick-type roles in favor of something much more serious. She turned down offers to play a flaming Latin Lupe Velez type, and anything in the same vein that was being offered. But when she got the offer to appear opposite Paul Robeson in Sanders of the River, who had personally requested her to be his co-star, she hopped on the first boat bound for England where the film was being shot. As a part of his contract and his agreeing to do the film, Paul Robeson required that the indigenous people in the film be portrayed in a positive light, as the film centers on the British colonist Leslie Banks in Nigeria, where parts of the film were shot, trying to rule his province fairly. He works in tandem with Basambo, one of the chiefs of the land to rule fairly. But Robeson and McKinney both felt that their roles were diminished significantly in favor of a white savior type of film. They were crushed thinking that they had been a part of something progressive and positive for their people. They both went on to publicly disown the film. 
She was slated to appear in another film with Paul Robeson called Song of Freedom in 1936, but the deal fell through, and the actress who replaced her said it was because McKinney was very young and immature, clearly unable to cope with fame and success. Nina continued to travel and perform within Europe until the war broke out and she returned to the United States in September of 1939, where she joined Pancho Diggs and his orchestra on tour and where she met Jimmy Monroe. And the pair married in 1940. But the marriage was tumultuous from the start and the pair divorced just a year later. Jimmy Monroe went on to marry singer Billie Holiday. Still searching for those dramatic roles, she went back to Hollywood in search of work to no avail. So she turned to the black production companies to make race films, which were films that gave African-Americans the opportunity to create work that represented their communities accurately. She made several of these race films, which included Gang Smashes and The Devil's Daughter. But by this point, her career in Hollywood was essentially over. Her contract at MGM had long lapsed and was not renewed. She reverted back to playing unnamed maid roles and uncredited roles in several films until her final major film role in 1949, Rosalia in Elia Kazan's Pinky. Pinky was an important race film during this time. It's about a light-skinned black woman, affectionately called Pinky, who is passing for white until she returns to her hometown in the South and faces the woes of being a black woman who can pass for white, but is still treated like a black woman. The role, of course, was played by Jean Crane, a white woman. It also stars Ethel Barrymore and Ethel Waters. All three of the leading actresses were nominated for Academy Awards that year, which shows you the way the tide was turning in this country in the post-war politics of Hollywood and its new devotion to consciousness. Because though Ethel Waters gives a stellar performance as Dicey, Pinky's illiterate and at times very stereotypical black grandmother who just wants the best for her Pinky, and Ethel Barrymore provides much-needed comedic relief as Miss M, an elderly, sick white woman who lives in a huge estate right next to Dicey's literal hut and leaves the estate to Pinky when she inevitably dies. That, of course, did not go over well with the white townspeople. Jean Crane is terrible! Jean Crane, she is void of all emotion, and even though she plays the titular character, she is literally so forgettable. There is no genuineness to any of her performance, which makes me think that she didn't want to be there, or maybe she just isn't good at this. Or maybe I just refuse to buy the woes of this Negro woman growing up in the segregated South because Jean Crane is so clearly fucking white and privileged enough that she got to go to school in the North for nursing and she pretended to be white because it made it easier for her. Now, if only my black ass could turn it off when it suits me. But sorry, Hollywood, Jean Crane, 20th Century Fox, we real Negroes cannot do that. So... The typical Hollywood ending of the film where Pinky wins the court case and opens a school for nurses and it's full of black young girls studying medicine. Sure, I'm touched at the inclusion of black women and the positivity they chose to end on. But it is in no way to make up for Pinky being written as being ashamed of her blackness and everyone equating whiteness to something that is better than and at the notion that if biracial people just chose their white side, their lives would be all right. And at the casting of the role of a biracial woman as a lily fucking white, straight haired white woman. Well, you know who else is being considered for the role? Nina Mae McKinney wanted to play it. 
And she was actually a biracial woman. Dorothy Dandridge wanted to play it. And you know who else was passed over for the role in favor of fucking Jean Crane? Lena Horne, an actual biracial woman. And this would not be the last time in Lena Horne's career that something like this would happen to her. It is said that when Elliot Kazan replaced John Ford as the film's director, that he was not happy with the casting choice. In fact, the only positive thing he had to say about Jean Crane was, Jean Crane was a sweet girl, but she was like Sunday school teacher. I did my best with her, but she didn't have any fire. The only good thing was that it went so far in the direction of no temperament that you felt Pinky was floating through all of her experiences without reacting to them, which is what passing is. While I cannot speak to the nature of what it is like to live as a biracial person who could pass for white, I feel confident enough and informed enough to say that it is a little bit more complicated than floating through all of one's experiences. But in 1949, in a post-war, pre-House and American Activities Red Scare America, I don't think Elliot Kazan was really in the position to ruin any chance he had at a job, controversial as it may have been. And it definitely did not help him in the coming years when he would be blacklisted for his connection to communism. But nonetheless, he made the film with Gene Crane and the one scene that Nina Mae McKinney was in, she was electric as Jake Walter's girlfriend or wife that's never really made clear. But she gets into an argument with Pinky when Jake Walters gives Pinky money that he owed her and we find out that the money belongs to Rosalia of course, men, they get into a heated argument on the street and eventually the police arrive and they try to console Pinky while attacking Rosalia and not even listening to her story or point of view. But once Rosalia exposes that Pinky is a Negro woman and not a white woman like they had previously thought, they throw her in the direction of Jake and Rosalia as if she were scum of the earth. McKinney was beautiful in this scene and her performance, though small, was fiery and had a lasting impact on Pinky and the way she viewed her whiteness for the rest of the film. McKinney would go on to make another film, Copper Canyon, in 1950, and perform in a stage adaption of Rain in 1951, but not much is known about what she did with her life after that point. We know she moved back to Europe. Some say she lived in Athens, Greece for a while before moving back to New York City sometime during the 1960s. And on May 3rd, 1967, Nina Mae McKinney died of a heart attack at the age of 54. Not much was written about her death or even her life's work other than that she had been a small-time theater actress. The mainstream media, MGM, and all of Hollywood didn't even acknowledge her death. She was later acknowledged and memorialized by her hometown of Lancaster, South Carolina, and in 1978, the Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame gave her a posthumous Lifetime Achievement Award for her work. And in 2008, a commemorative stamp of the Hallelujah promotional poster was issued. But that's it. Hollywood doesn't get a pass for not having enough Black movie stars when they never made considerable efforts to make room for women with so much potential. Her reception in Hollywood aside, Nina Mae McKinney was arguably the first Black Hollywood movie star. She was the blueprint for all the stars who came after her who demanded the treatment that the white stars got. She was beautiful, 
glamorous, full of life, full of passion and drive. She took every opportunity that life afforded her, leading her to knock down doors and break barriers for African-American movie stars in ways that often go unnoticed and unappreciated. But without her, who knows where the state of the black movie star would be? If she, at such a young and impressionable age, didn't force Hollywood to pay attention, who knows where the industry would be? Thank you, Nina Mae McKinney, for all you did for performers of color. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Blacklist. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and like this podcast on iTunes and leave us a five-star review if you feel so inclined. I know it seems like such a small thing, but it does go a long way. And if you want to learn more about us, please like us on Facebook at The Black Dash List and follow us on Twitter at The Blacklist Pod. And also feel free to follow my personal Twitter at Mariah in Woods. All episodes of The Blacklist are written, narrated, edited, and produced by Mariah. Mariah Woods, me. Until next time.